Welcome into Outkick the Show. I'm your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having fantastic Tuesdays wherever you may be across the country. I am headed to Las Vegas tomorrow. Uh, I'll be out in Sin City until uh, Monday evening through the Super Bowl. We'll be doing some cool stuff. We've already got Outkick shows originating from Las Vegas. Charlie Arnold's going to be there uh, with Rowan Hutton are going to be there with Hot Mike. Uh, we're going to be doing the fade on Thursday. I think it's going to be live. If it's not live, it'll be close to live. Kelly Stewart and I will be uh, live from Radio Row in Las Vegas doing our uh, Super Bowl gap gambling extravaganza, discussing so many different uh, news stories there. So lots of good, cool, interesting uh, content that's going to be coming to you from the final football game uh, of the NFL season from the Super Bowl between the 49ers and the Chiefs. I'm going to dive in and give you my Super Bowl pick right now. Again, because I'm traveling out tomorrow, uh, we'll do a deep dive on gambling uh, on Thursday uh, on the program. But I want to break down the Super Bowl here for you. I'm going to talk about uh, the decision by the D.C. Circuit as it pertains to Donald Trump's presidential immunity claims, where we're looking, where we're headed on the Jack Smith case based on trying to analyze so many different moving parts of the law. I want to talk about NIL, the NCAA, where we are headed there, and all of the challenges associated with it. All of that still to come uh, in your direction. Uh, and also, Joe Biden, the dementia, it just keeps getting worse, uh, and everything is falling apart there. Uh, so I want to give you all of that breakdown. Let me start, though, with the Super Bowl, which is going to be played in, what are we, five days away from the Super Bowl, I think, uh, on Sunday out in Las Vegas. I like, I told you, I kind of hinted at it before, I like the San Francisco 49ers to win, cover the two and a half, and, uh, and give Kyle Shanahan, Christian McCaffrey, Brock Purdy, and company a Super Bowl win. Let me explain why. So as I look at this game, and we got two weeks to think about the game, we got two weeks to analyze it, let me break down ultimately why I'm coming down on the side of the San Francisco 49ers. Generally speaking, if you have watched me over the years, you know that I tend to like quarterbacks over everything. The reason why I bet on Patrick Mahomes on the road against uh, the, the Baltimore Ravens, the Chiefs in that game, as the underdog by over a field goal was because I believe Patrick Mahomes by far was the best player on the field. And while I believe Lamar Jackson is very talented, I don't think he's surrounded by elite playmaking talent on the Baltimore Ravens squad. Uh, you know, Mark Andrews, very, very talented at tight end, coming off of the injury, fighting his way back. But in general, I don't believe that the, the Ravens have the playmakers to overcome Patrick Mahomes. That's why I bet the Chiefs. That's why I think the Chiefs won, because of how good Patrick Mahomes is. I do believe that while Patrick Mahomes will be the best player on the field Sunday and is the best quarterback presently in the NFL, he is the closest thing to Tom Brady that exists in the league at this moment, I believe that the talent of the San Francisco 49ers on the offensive side of the ball is significant enough that they are the difference maker. And last week you may have heard me just kind of do a fun exercise sometimes. If you were going to pick playmakers – on the 49ers and on the Chiefs. And if you were just doing like a backyard football game and you were drafting, like we all did back in the day 
two captains, there's a bunch of kids out in the middle, and you each take turns drafting players on your team. What would that look like at offense? Patrick, let's say Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy are drafting. Um, Brock Purdy's team is stacked because I believe clearly, leave aside the quarterbacks, Mahomes is a more accomplished and better quarterback than Brock Purdy. No one is disputing that. Been in more big games, one more of them. The first overall pick on the offensive side of the ball would be, playmaker-wise, Christian McCaffrey. Unanimously, everybody would take him. Great running back, can make plays out of the backfield. Uh, receiving is not only an incredible talent, but also makes everybody around him more difficult to defend because he is a all-purposes back. He can do everything at a very high level. Christian McCaffrey would be the first pick. I think the second pick would be Debo Samuel. Debo Samuel is a game-breaking playmaker, not only in the passing game, but also they get him involved sometimes in the run game. Uh, sometimes they use him uh, as, a, uh, as a very useful decoy, right? Debo is a, uh, a Swiss Army knife of a football talent. I think he would be the second pick of the offensive playmakers. Third pick, I think, would be Brandon Ayuk. He is the most explosive, dominant, take-the-top-off-the-defense playmaker, in my opinion, on either team. Fourth pick, you can get into an argument. You can have a debate about exactly what would uh, and should be the fourth pick. But I think you would go to tight end. And I think some people would say, and I'd be one of them, that I believe Kittle is the better tight end over the course of time. Other people would say Travis Kelsey. So you have to go all the way to the fourth playmaker before there's even an argument that you would take a Kansas City Chiefs receiver. Kansas City Chiefs playmaker. And I think George Kittle, you can argue, is the better tight end if you look at their performance over the course of the year. Travis Kelsey was phenomenal in the AFC Championship game, but I had him on my fantasy team for the back half of the season. Travis Kelsey was kind of worthless. Travis Kelsey looked washed. If Again, if you watch the Chiefs this year, that is accurate. Doesn't mean he didn't play phenomenally well in the AFC Championship game. Had a couple of touchdown catches against the Bills. He has elevated his game. But by and large, he was not a big-time difference maker in the back half of the year for the Kansas City Chiefs. So, offensive playmakers, what it comes down to me is, are you going to take offensive playmaker talent or are you going to take quarterback? And then on top of that, I look at Kyle Shanahan and I think to myself, who would I rather have as a schematic play caller? Andy Reid or Kyle Shanahan, I know Andy Reid has had a lot of success. And this may be blasphemy to some of you. I actually like Kyle Shanahan more with two weeks to prepare than I do Andy Reid because I think Kyle Shanahan has better weapons to work with. So if I like the weapons of the San Francisco 49ers better than I do uh, the, uh, the weapons of the Chiefs, and if I think Mahomes is better than Purdy, but not so much better, because Purdy's going to be throwing to the better weapons, and we know how many drops the Chiefs receivers have had, and we know that Kelsey hasn't been that great. To me, offensive side of the ball, I'm going to side with the 49ers. 
Then I break down the defense. And I say, okay, let's go to the defensive side of the ball. The Chiefs are elite and have been playing incredibly well on the defensive side of the ball. And this is what gives me more pause in my selection of the 49ers. Because when I look at the 49ers, I'm not sure their secondary is elite. Uh, and the question I ultimately come down to is, by the way, let me start with the Chiefs. Chiefs haven't given up more than 27 points in basically like two years. So you have to win this game probably in the 20s against the Kansas City Chiefs. Because you're not going to play a game, I don't think, in the 30s based on how the Chiefs have played uh, historically in the last couple of years. On the flip side, four years ago, we saw this game. Down in Miami, uh, Chiefs won late, made a big-time throw down the field late. Then you had, I believe it was uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, Miss Emmanuel Sanders, what should have been a walk-off touchdown, basically, if you remember that game very well. Mahomes rallied his team, led the Chiefs to a championship. I look on the defensive side of the ball, and I say, while I have not liked what the 49ers have done in the first half of their games, I didn't think they played very well against the Packers in the first half. Certainly, they didn't play very well uh, in the first half against the Detroit Lions. They've played really very well in the second half, by and large. I think we're going to get a second-half 49er performance with two weeks to get ready. And I think the 49ers are going to be able to get pressure on Patrick Mahomes uh, and the Chiefs a lot with their elite front four pass rushers. So ultimately, analyzing all of this, I come down to I like the 49ers to cover the two and a half. I think the 49ers win 24 to 21. That is my prediction of how this ends up shaking out. All right. That is my Super Bowl prediction. We'll obviously give you a really detailed Thursday gambling central focused on so many different prop bets and everything else. Kelly Stewart and I will do that for you from Radio Row in Las Vegas on Thursday. But that is my breakdown and why I am taking uh, the San Francisco 49ers to win 24 to 21. I want to tell you, roses are red, violets are blue. Trim your balls and your date will thank us too. What's up, fellas? Valentine's Day is knocking and Manscaped is the remedy for what the love doctor ordered. His prescription, the all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob you are. Join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com to snag 20% off and free shipping with the code OUTKICK. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped. Use that code OUTKICK because your grooming upgrade awaits, ready to charm your Valentine's dates. Don't be a mess. Go to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code OUTKICK. Um, All right. Several other different stories that are out there. A lot of you have read my NCAA look at college football, where are we headed with NIL piece? A lot of reactions have flowed in. I've had a lot of conversations. I'm probably going to have a lot of conversations with people um, out in 
uh, Las Vegas because there's a lot of sports media people, a lot of business people out there. Look forward to those conversations and, uh, and how that's all going to go. Uh, but I wanted to tell you guys all that I'm even more convinced there was a new bill introduced by Senator Marsha Blackburn and Senator Cory Booker uh, in uh, the Senate where they basically went after the NCAA and their enforcement mechanism. The NCAA is so unpopular that it has managed to unite Democrats and Republicans and independents and a lot of you out there watching or listening right now that have no interest whatsoever in politics. We had a great op-ed on this issue saying that Congress needs to get involved. Uh, that is up from Senator Tommy Tuberville on OutKick right now. You can go read that. Uh, Tuberville says that a lot of people are going to leave college coaching because you have right now 39 different state NIL bills, and those are often in conflict with uh, each other. And everybody is pushing different rules. And how does NCAA, which has no power of subpoena and no power of law, end up interacting with all these different state laws? Last week on, I believe it was Wednesday, uh, we saw the states of Tennessee and Virginia file a lawsuit uh, seeking to uh, basically strip away the NCAA's ability to investigate NIL deals at all. Um, And all of this is part and parcel of a major national conversation and debate about what the future of profitable college athletics is. I say profitable college athletics because there's really a very big difference between football and men's basketball by and large. Some baseball programs make a little bit of money. Uh, Virtually no women's athletic programs make any money at all. Um, And so really, to me, there's a big difference between for-profit and not-for-profit. And the athletic departments are kind of caught between them. And how is all of this going to play out? I don't see any solution that is different than college football at a minimum, maybe basketball too, breaking off from the NCAA and creating their own ownership dynamic where players are paid as employees. Um, And the word employee can be broadly construed uh, because you can agree to a lot of different things in an employment contract. For instance, some people out there say, well, there's just going to be no college aspect at all anymore. No, that's not true. Um, A collective bargaining agreement with players, and some of you might have seen that there's a union being formed in Dartmouth, of all places, uh, up there now. A uh, employee union CBA, players as a part of that CBA could be required, for instance, under contract to go to school and maintain their grade point average as a part of their employability under contract a college football rubric, right? In fact, I would suggest that it should occur. Um, And to me, this is all now getting debated. But what I'm hearing from everybody, and I have a lot of conversations, because really, I think I said this yesterday, but this is like a five-point complicated issue. There's politics. There's media. There's sports. There's business, and all of that is rolled in together in one complicated legal, is the fifth one there, uh, legal process too. And the challenging thing about having five different sort of interplaying concepts here is something can make sense, for instance, legally, 
and not make sense from a business perspective. And something can make sense from a business perspective and not make sense legally. And so you have to construct a new paradigm, a new dynamic for college athletics that includes solutions on all five of those fronts. And that is a very complicated situation. And so what I have laid out is not something I'm saying, hey, this is 100% the way it has to be. But that conversation is taking place now. And athletic directors and school presidents and conference commissioners and television executives and politicians and media executives, they're all looking at this and saying, right now college football is broken. How do we fix it? And how do we build something that's more durable than what we have right now for the generations to come? And so what I think it's important for most people out there to understand is no one wants to break or destroy the golden goose. But there is a conversation about how the gold that the goose is producing can be expanded and also better distributed so that all the stakeholders end up in a better position than they are right now. Because here's the reality. The twin duality of NIL, that is name, image, and likeness, which again, most of name, image, and likeness is not actually name, image, and likeness. It's not endorsement money. It's not doing a Wendy's commercial. It's not doing a Manscaped read. It's not uh, signing your autograph and selling it. It's being paid to play football or basketball. There are, according to my friend Shannon Terry, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent right now on actual salaries for athletes to play football and basketball. And only a small part of that is actually endorsements, name, image, and likeness related. So name, image, and likeness is here. It's not going away. But really, it's pay for play. And then also as a part of that is unrestricted transfers. And you cannot have both of those elements, in my mind, in play and have any kind of fair, organized, beneficial system for college football going forward. I think this is a short-lived hybrid moment that will be adjusted and we're creating the new paradigm in real time right now. So I'm going to continue to follow this. I'm excited to have a bunch of conversations with stakeholders out at the Super Bowl uh, to think about what this might look like going forward. Uh, but I just wanted to, uh, to address that and encourage you to go read my piece. Just type in Clay Travis at the top of OutKick, uh, and you'll see whatever the most recent things I have written. Uh, it'll pop right up. That'll be the story. Um, okay. Wanted to talk about uh, a duality also that I see coming forward in politics. The Trump v. Biden battle to the extent that it ends up happening. Earlier this morning, the D.C. Court of Appeals essentially rejected uh, a portion of or rejected the Jan 6th argument that Trump's activities were privileged and part of his presidential powers. And by the way, I am synthesizing what their opinion was. It's like a 58-page judicial opinion. I'm just trying to give you the bullet points of what exactly was ruled. So they said Trump cannot avoid criminal prosecution here by arguing that all of his actions were within the scope of his presidential powers. That's essentially what they said. And now Trump has an option to appeal to what they call en banc, 
the entire D.C. Court of Appeals. And if he does that, probably still going to get shot down, but he could wait 30 days. It could hold up things for 60 days or whatever, and then he could go to the Supreme Court. But if he does that, then the court is saying they will allow the district court to continue the process of beginning uh, the, uh, the, the trial. I think what Trump's going to do instead by Monday is appeal directly to the Supreme Court. And what I have been telling you for some time is I expect that there's no way Trump can go on trial, regardless of what the Supreme Court rules, until we get those rulings that will probably come down in late June. That means, to me, the earliest that Trump could go on trial in D.C., which was originally scheduled for March 4th, and I've been telling you that date was out the window, the earliest that Trump could go on trial is probably late July, early August. That's my expectation. It would then be a couple of months, the trial, and so it would run through the end of July, August, into September, maybe into October. So people would have already started voting, potentially, before the Jack Smith case actually comes down. And this would be a flagrant violation of Department of Justice precedent, which says, generally speaking, that they do not engage in political prosecutions during election season. So Merrick Garland, Joe Biden, Department of Justice, they're trying to put Donald Trump, the chief political adversary of Joe Biden, in prison for the rest of his life while people are going out to make a decision on who the president of the United States should be. My position on this is pretty clear. Everybody knows what happened by now on January 6th. We've had the hearings in Capitol Hill. Uh, We've seen all the reporting. We've seen the videos. There is no uncertainty about January 6th. What this really boils down to is this question. Do you want a 12-person jury uh, out there in Washington, D.C., which is 95% Democrats, do you want a 12-person jury to make a decision on whether Donald Trump's actions on January 6th should disqualify him from being president? Or do you want 150 million potential voters nationwide to be a jury weighing in on whether you think Donald Trump's actions were disqualifying? To me, if you actually believe in democracy, this is not a hard decision. You want 150 million people weighing in all over the country in all 50 states on whether they think Donald Trump is qualified to be president of the United States or whether they like Joe Biden or some other Democrat to be named later. That's actual democracy. Trying to take the guy off the ballot, as they're doing in Maine and Colorado, and trying to put him in prison for the rest of his life, as they are trying to do in New York, in D.C., in Georgia, and in Florida, is actually the threat to democracy. It's amazing to me that the argument is we have to put the chief political opponent of the current sitting president of the United States in prison for the rest of his life rather than allow people to decide whether they like him or Joe Biden or someone Democrat to be named later. That's the question. Do you want a jury of 12 people to decide what they think about January 6th or in November, nine months from now, do you want everybody in the entire country who is a citizen and a voter 
to be able to go out and render their own verdict based on what we have all seen that has already been reported and discussed in infinite detail relating to Jan 6. And this doesn't even consider, by the way, that the Supreme Court is already sitting and making a decision on obstruction to potentially toss two of the four charges that Jack Smith is attempting to bring against Donald Trump. Again, I don't see any way that this trial can start until late July at the earliest, maybe potentially early August. And do we really want that time frame for Trump to have to appear every day in trial in Washington, D.C., sitting in front of a jury and a judge rather than be able to actually have a campaign and be traveling all over the country uh, trying to make his case to America. Finally, that is the Democrat plan. It is to throw as much lawfare at Trump as they possibly can, and they hope in the process persuade Americans that Trump is unelectable because, and by Americans, I mean non-Democrats, non-Republicans, just people out there who are persuadable that they should stick with Biden or a Democrat to be named later. Meanwhile, that is the Democrat plan, lawfare. Working against it is the fact that I believe Biden has clear issues of mental and physical cognition and health. And yesterday was the latest version of that when Trump, uh, sorry, when Biden was speaking, he was telling a story, and we'll put that clip this, we should, and put that clip in so you can hear it when we share a shortened version of this. Joe Biden said he went to the G7 summit recently, and he said he showed up and he was talking to the other leaders, G7, of course, the global uh, biggest countries in the world, biggest economies. Uh, and they regularly meet to talk about issues of, uh, of international, economic, and beyond uh, concerns. And he said, I was talking with the president of Germany, Mitterrand. And then he said, he tried to correct himself, and he said, oh, I mean the president of France, Mitterrand. The problem with that is the president of France, as many of you out there know, because he's been the president of France for like the last six years, is Emmanuel Macron. And Emmanuel Macron is the president of France. Joe Biden was actually making up a conversation that he supposedly had with Francois Mitterrand, who was the president of France until 1995 and actually died in 1996. This guy has got major cognition-related issues. And this is not, to me, getting someone's name mixed up, right? It's easy sometimes, I do it, you probably do it, where you just get a name mixed up. The guy's been dead 28 years. He died in 1996. This isn't, this happened with Biden when he was with in Congress, uh, in, in the White House, and he tried to give a shout out to a Indiana Congresswoman named, first name Jackie, I apologize, I don't remember her last name, but she died in a car accident, and the White House had put out condolences. She was dead. He said, where's Jackie? Jackie, where are you? Jackie's unfortunately dead, Joe Biden. And this just happened again in North Carolina where Biden tried to shout out a congresswoman 
when he was appearing in North Carolina and said he had just gotten his picture taken with her and that didn't happen and she wasn't actually there. This is not like one or two little things that that is happening. 82-year-old Joe Biden, as 75% of Americans believe, does not have the mental or physical capacity to be the president of the United States. And the more frequently this keeps happening as an issue, I think the more and more likely it becomes that Biden is not going to be the nominee at all. But if he is, a lot of independent voters are going to have to make a decision. Are they more troubled by the lawfare against Trump and the potential that he could be convicted of a felony in a Democrat-run city by a Democrat-run jury? Or are they more troubled by the mental and physical deterioration of Joe Biden and the fact that what I believe is true, he's not actually capable of being president of the United States right now? That's going to be the question. We'll continue to break that down for you unless there is wild news that comes down this afternoon or early tomorrow. You will not see me again until I am out in fabulous Las Vegas getting ready for the Super Bowl. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. I'm Clay Travis, and this has been Outkick, the show.